This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shirley. Depending on when you're listening to this, uh, then Owen Patterson is definitely in the clear or definitely not, or we're waiting to see. Uh, after the, all of the excitement of the Commons vote last night to tear up the standards rules in the House of Commons, halfway through recording the show today, we got the news that the government was U-turning. So you will hear in a moment what happened with that. Our, our big thing coming up on the podcast today, though, is a really fascinating conversation about what's happening in Africa, extraordinary population growth in Africa. Uh, we're going to look at what that means when it comes to climate change, urbanisation, a growing middle class and pressure on uh, migration uh, coming into Europe. Uh, so that's coming up in just a moment in our big thing. But first, it's our columnist panel, uh, James Marriott from The Times and John Stevens from The Daily Mail. And just as we were starting our conversation, it was all kicking off in the House of Commons. So let's take a listen. Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm also aware that last night's vote has created a certain amount of controversy. It is important that standards in this House are done on a cross-party basis. The House, the House voted very clearly yesterday to show that it is worried about the process of handling these complaints and that we would like an appeal system, but that change would need to be on a cross-party basis, and that is clearly not the case. While there is a very strong feeling on both sides of the House that there is a need for an appeals process, there is equally a strong feeling that this should not be based on a single case or applied retrospectively. I fear last night's debate conflated the individual case with the general concern. This link, this link needs to be broken. Therefore, I and others will be looking to work on a cross-party basis to achieve improvements in our system for future cases. We will bring forward more detailed proposals once there have been cross-party discussions. Good morning, James. Good morning. And from uh, the Daily Mail, the Deputy Political Editor, John Stevens. Morning, John. Hi, Matt. And we've that uh, smell you can uh, uh, smell is the uh, screeching of tyres, a screeching U-turn happening literally as we speak. John, do you want to update us on what's been happening? Yeah, so in the last couple of minutes, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Commons lead, has been on his feet and the government seems to have completely ditched their plan that they voted for yesterday. <laughs> They're not now going to have this new committee to look again at the Owen Patterson case. Rees-Mogg has said that 
if we're going to get changes in the standard system, it has to be cross-party. And as we know, Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP yesterday said they wouldn't be taking part in this new sham committee. So things are in a total mess. I'm not quite sure how they where they go from here, because obviously MPs voted this through yesterday. So they can't just pretend yesterday didn't happen and then move on and hope that everyone forgets it. So uh, goodness knows what they're going to do next. Who knows? Well, let's um, let's try and unpick what he's saying. Let's, let's take a listen. This is the Commons leader, Jacob Rees-Mogg, announcing something. Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm also aware that last night's vote has created a certain amount of controversy. It is important that standards in this House are done on a cross-party basis. The House... The House voted very clearly yesterday to show that it is worried about the process of handling these complaints and that we would like an appeal system, but that change would need to be on a cross-party basis, and that is clearly not the case. While there is a very strong feeling on both sides of the House that there is a need for an appeals process, there is equally a strong feeling that this should not be based on a single case or applied retrospectively. I fear last night's debate conflated the individual case with the general concern. This link link needs to be broken. Therefore, I and others will be looking to work on a cross-party basis to achieve improvements in our system for future cases. We will bring forward more detailed proposals once there have been cross-party discussions. Right. So uh, I don't know how the two things could have possibly been conflated, John. How do you think that happened? (laughs) I think you know how it happened. It was deliberately done by the government. But, you know, who knows where we go from here? I think actually it's more damaging for Owen Patterson what's gone on. It now looks like we will have a recall petition. And whether the people of North Shropshire now think "Mm, there's definitely something fishy going on here, maybe he's more likely to face a challenge. So we should explain that because he, uh, well, we now assume, we don't know where his um, 30 day suspension stands because the Commons should have voted on that yesterday. So presumably that will have to go to a vote. And it sounds like now that will get nodded through. He'll be suspended for 30 days, which then triggers the idea of having a a by-election in his seat. Yeah, so total total mess of the Tories. And I'm just not sure what Boris Johnson ever thought he was going to gain with this. That's the thing I just didn't understand about yesterday was I know people are sympathetic to Owen Patterson. What's happened with him and his wife dying through suicide is absolutely awful. And I know there were MPs who had sympathy with him for that reason. But I just don't get what on earth the government thought they were doing by ripping up the whole system, doing this extraordinary thing and thinking that they would be able to get away with it. You know, we know that the government love to call themselves the people's government. But yet again, like with the Dom Cummings case, when everyone in the country could see that something was fishy going on, that he had done the wrong thing, but Downing Street didn't seem to be able to see that. Yet again, they seem to be on the wrong side of the public argument. Uh, James, uh, Mike has just texted in saying, Matt, may I suggest this is an almighty mess? Yeah, I mean, that's hard That's hard to argue with, isn't it? Um, it's the only thing we can be sure of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange because um, you kind of assume part of the rationale behind the vote yesterday was this, was this idea that Boris Johnson has this kind of Teflon quality and, you know, there can be as much Tory sleaze as you like at the moment and the public won't ever seem to notice or to mind or to ever get particularly exercised about it. And I suppose... 
the idea now is that perhaps they think they might have tried to go too far and these things might be reaching might be reaching the public. I mean, there was the huge Daily Mail front page this morning, obviously. And I wonder if this is a kind of, is this the government deciding they might be testing their luck a bit? I suppose there's a bit of that. But, and also, John, I presume that uh, there's one thing that, taught, that well, MPs of any party really hate is when they individually, scores of them last night, did it they were told while privately acknowledging it was a total mess, but for a sense of loyalty or whatever, it's part of their job, they go through the lobbies and they vote with the government, and they've had all that grief overnight, their inboxes will have been filled this morning, the abuse on Twitter and all of that, and now the government U-turns and they just look really stupid. Yeah, that's why it's been worth nothing, and I think that's the thing they won't be able to undo is the damage it's caused. And you look at the public perception of MPs as a good piece by Jackie Doyle Price, one of the 13 Tory MPs who voted against this yesterday in Red Box Today. And she says lots of the public think we're trousing money at a rate of knots, which isn't the case. But you need to change that perception. But then things like yesterday do nothing to help that. And that's why I just felt so angry yesterday. I just had to turn the TV off because I was just finding it so annoying, which is obviously not particularly helpful when you're meant to be a journalist covering the news. But, um, but the thing that annoyed me most was, you know, we all know there are so many good MPs on all sides. Most MPs are there for good reasons. I, You know, you struggle to find an MP who's got bad motivations. You spend your time talking to friends and family saying, no, they're not all, you know, snouts in the trough, etc., etc. And then they go and do this. And MPs who you look up to and admire were on totally the wrong side of the argument. And I just think it's been so damaging for Parliament. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, James, is the, the, the perception of politicians... You know, it was only two weeks ago we were talking about David Amos and everyone saying we should... Uh, show more consideration, respect for politicians, and then this happens. Yeah, they're not exactly showing themselves worthy of much consideration and respect, are they? Um, yeah, I'd just be fascinated. I'd be fa- yeah, I'd just be fascinated to know how many people, how many people are following this, and how many people um, are paying attention to it, and whether I guess the kind of the danger is it just becomes part of this kind of general public perception that politicians are corrupt, even if people can't, you know, aren't following the particular details of every single individual scandal that happens. Um, I remember when we were talking about Tory Slees um, earlier, the, earlier this year, there was kind of YouGov polling saying that a lot of the kind of details of this stuff was only reaching very highly informed voters, but there must be a point at which it begins to trickle down into everybody else's kind of general idea of um, of what politicians are, are like. And that, that I guess that's where it becomes dangerous. I was just looking actually at the YouGov polling on uh, on Boris Johnson. Even amongst conservative voters, only forty four five percent think that Boris Johnson's trustworthy. <laughs> uh, that was that was uh, the beginning of November. So that might you know obviously there's an overnight polling. Um, uh, you know he actually I think his poll ratings went up actually when he was in hospital last year. But amongst all voters, uh, two thirds of people basically think he's untrustworthy. I mean I suppose part of the issue is that. If his if his popularity has never been based on being trustworthy, does it damage him if he starts uh, undermining that, John? Well, I think you do get a cloud just around the government, just a general feeling that there is something up here. And obviously that's an attack line that Labour have been trying to push for months, you know, or oh, the return of Tory sleeves, which... They seem to say at the drop of a hat of anything, but I think in this case it really is. And I think once you've got those individual MPs who stupidly followed the whip under a lot of pressure from the government, only for the government to then turn around and say, oh, actually, we're not going to do that anyway. 
I, I think let's see what MPs say in the next couple of days about their inboxes and about their mailbags, about how angry their constituents are. And obviously, I don't think many people are going to have followed the exact little intricacies of this case. I don't think there's many people who have read the hundreds of pages of reports that the commissioner and the committee published but I think a lot of people will manage to understand the basics that this man took a half a million pounds in earnings for these firms then promoted them got fat got found that he'd done wrong by this committee and by the commissioner and then the Tories tried to let him off I think most people can understand that yeah, but just, just to update, if you are just uh, uh, joining us, uh, the government has performed, I think it's fair to say, a screeching U-turn on the question of Owen Paterson and overhauling the standards uh, process in the House of Commons. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg announcing the last few minutes. Uh, the, he, he says that the last night's vote may have created a, had created a certain amount of controversy and the need to reform uh, the standards process had been conflated uh, with the particular case of Owen Paterson. Uh, and uh, the very strong feeling on both sides of the House were a need for an appeals process, uh, but this shouldn't be based on a single case or apply retrospectively. Uh, I fear last night's debate conflated an individual case with the general concern. This link needs to be broken. We're not clear about what this actually means for the fate of uh, Owen Paterson. So as we work that out, uh, we will come to that. Uh, James, uh, let's just uh, quickly talk about your uh, your column today. Um, <laughs> today, railing against enthusiasm. Yes, yeah, it's the nice thing about having a column, actually, is that um, occasionally you can just have a proper rant in it, which I try not to do all the time um, because there's too much ranting in the world. But... Um, the sort of I was just getting very irritated about the perpetual cult of overenthusiasm that seems seems to me to be sort of growing everywhere. And I was looking through. I mean, I think it's something that you especially encounter at work. And I was looking through my email inbox yesterday. And if you're a journalist, you're continually emailed by PR people. But I suspect everybody in every industry experiences some some kind of thing along these lines. Where I was just counting the number of emails that people had sent me with the words excitement, passion in, and people claiming to be excited, but all the kind of like tech-led business infrastructure reform they were passionate about <laughs> someone was excited about knitting and i was just like this is absolutely bananas this is incredibly annoying um and i think this sort of infected our culture more widely in a way that i just sort of think there's something quite dishonest about the way that everyone has to pretend to be incredibly enthusiastic about everything all the time uh so the basic thesis of the column was uh bring back apathy uh indifference uh boredom and unenthusiasm <laughs> <laughs> john are you a naturally well i, I know this you are you're generally a fairly enthusiastic person well, I don't, I don't like fake enthusiasm. I think we'd all agree that that's the problem. But, I mean, you've worked in an office with me. No one wants to work in a room with people who are miserable all the time, always moaning. You want some energy about the place. You want some enthusiasm. So I think if everyone was generally apathetic and whining, it would be quite terrible. Well, you, you want to go in a room with a bit of a get-up-and-go, don't you? Yeah, but I suppose there's a difference between the actual human beings you work with and the overexcitable... Uh press release brigade, uh, which is a sort yeah. of slightly different thing. Um, well, there we are. Well, um, uh, I mean, your contribution there was fine, James. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be any more enthusiastic <laughs> about it than that. Uh, John Stevens, lovely to speak to you as well. Uh, John Stevens there, uh, Deputy Political Editor of uh, the Daily Mail. And uh, James Matt, you can read James's column all about how the cult of enthusiasm leaves him indifferent. Uh, pick up a couple of the papers today or go online to thetimes.co.uk. Sign up now and get your digital subscription. Get your first month for free. Up next... We take an in-depth look at Africa. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, a really fascinating conversation with four brilliant experts talking about uh, the extraordinary population growth that we're seeing in Africa. Roger. Hi, morning. This is something you've looked at in uh, in some detail. Just, um, I mean, those all of those numbers are sort of uh, mind boggling. Um, but what is fueling this this rise, this this extraordinary population growth in Africa? Well, it's um, it's partly urbanisation. So, um, and this might take it back a little bit to climate change. So, a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, desertification going, a lot of drought. A lot of um, villages becoming um, unsustainable um, and uh, young men, primarily young men, uh, heading for the cities for work um, and also in, in some senses for uh, modernity, for a, for a sense of modernness, you know, the, um, you know, the rise, for example, of smartphones is you know, huge, fantastic galloping in uh, in Africa. Um, so uh, you've got loads and loads and loads of people uh, over the last um, 15, 20 years have been heading for these mega cities. Um, and it's not just Lagos, which is huge and frankly, by some measures, is already close to 20 million or will come close to 20 million. That's just a huge, unthinkable city. That's 20 million, including its its surroundings. Uh, but, you know, Kinshasa, Luanda in Angola, you know. And what about um, the sort of the, the middle classization? if that's, I know that's not really a word, but the rise of the, the African middle class? Yes, I mean, that's, you know, that's... So uh, the first thing to be said about all these mega cities that, that is not that they're necessarily a bad thing. Mm. Uh, um, and, um, you know, a lot of big surges in um in civilizational surges have been related to expanding fast expanding cities yeah um and in general with with higher demography so um you know we've got the baby boom generation in the west the tiger states of asia um and they were all linked to uh the first of all um the growth of you know the the rise in young people uh the rise of young urban people, um, and then out of it, um, a certain middle-class sensibility, you know, because 
the smartest, the most entrepreneurial of those people who've moved into the cities, um, uh, you know, uh, set up startups or they they identify problems of urban li uh, living and try and um, either improve it or at least make a make a, a profit out of it. So, so all those things are positive, and the middle and. For a long time, the the um, the narrative was Africa rising. Yeah, there was a sense that Africa was was the booming continent. You know, um, led by demography, but also by the sense that there was this um, the education standards were going up. You know, that um, people were living for longer, and the you know things were improving. And this was kind of middle class driven. Yeah, this this. Yeah. This um, people who'd made their money out of trading then became more imaginative, set up, set up different things, and uh, and that this was really the key would be the key in the end uh, that Africa would turn turn the corner, uh, but that hasn't really happened. Uh, let's bring in. Uh, we can now speak to Im, uh, Yvonne Ndege, who's a regional spokesperson for the International Organisation for Migration, who joins us from Nairobi in Kenya. Morning, Yvonne. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. It's nice to uh, have you with us. Um, explain for us what you're seeing in Africa in terms of migration, whether that's internal, people moving, as Roger was discussing, you know, moving from parts of the uh, countries, uh, parts of the, the, the continent, which are less hospitable, into these sort of mega cities. And then how does Africa ensure that the brightest and best stay in Africa and, you know, fuel that economic boom? Um, you know, to, rather than then leaving uh, Africa altogether. Thanks, Matt. And it was great listening to Roger on the question about uh, climate change and what we're seeing, the impact of movement. The answer is we're seeing a lot work and research by IOM, the International Organization for Migration, um, is showing us that significant numbers of people across uh, the African continent are being displaced or facing facing the threat of displacement. Uh, due to climatic changes in Eastern Horn of Africa, where I am here in Nairobi, Kenya, countries like Somalia, South Sudan, smaller nations like Burundi, we see severe drought, flooding, extreme temperatures, both extreme heat, unusual temperatures, uh, temperature drops, extreme cold, which is unusual here. And it's the same in West Africa, in the Sahel region, where we see land and water degradation due to climate change, uh, deforestation, uh, which is also leading to major drops in agricultural productivity and the ability to farm uh, due to these ongoing environmental and climatic changes. Southern Africa is also affected uh, with severely reduced rainfall. Um, climate change is, is driving millions of people across Africa away from rural areas, uh, where many more millions, Roger alluded to this, rely on natural resources, um, like I mentioned, agriculture, but also mining and fishing. Now, in terms of, of numbers, and, and then I'll get to your question about the internal um, movement of um, Africans on the continent, in terms of numbers, according to figures by IOM, the International Organization for Migration, in 2020, there were 31 more million people displaced, 31 more million people displaced due to climate-related wow. disasters, and 4.5 million of those newly displaced persons were right here in Africa among some of the world's most vulnerable people. The World Bank um, predicts that there will be something like 86 million internally displaced or climate change driven um, or caused migration in sub-Saharan Africa by 2050. And the number could eventually be much higher because there are so many people here 
who migrate across borders when climate and environmental changes impact adversely on their lives and livelihoods, whilst it's relatively easy to sort of identify people who move for life-saving reasons when there's a major climate disaster and it's in the headlines, it's very difficult, of course, to identify people who move due to slower, the slower onset of climate and environmental changes, such as repeated and intensified drought and increasing rainfall variability over a period of years or decades, which obviously impacts on people's lives and livelihoods very negatively and forces them to move. Now, in terms of what we're seeing in Africa, we're seeing a lot more internal migration, contrary to and, and some of this is caused by climate change, but obviously other reasons, um, unemployment, poverty, um, um, uh, conflict. Um, there are many drivers um, in, in, in many instances, and particularly in this reason, people simply looking for a better life, uh, simply looking for work. Um, but recent studies by IOM, the International Organization for Migration, has found that over 80% of African migration or those of African origin, uh, to put it that way, who are on the move are actually moving within Africa. Um, and half of all African migrants are actually living in a neighboring country. So you have your, your, your larger um, economies, uh, Roger mentioned, of course, Nigeria, uh, South Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, um, some of these countries have 100 to 200, uh, 200 million uh, people living in them. Africa, though, accounts, and this is, 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 is underreported, I, I would say, African, Africans account for something like 14%, okay, uh, just 14% of all the global uh, migrant population, which is a fraction of what people hear and see on the news. Um, and it has been predominantly intra-Africa, um, the borders are porous. Uh, people move between borders uh, relatively easy. There are efforts to um, there are efforts to uh, uh, um, uh, to loosen um, the sort of restrictions that inhibit. Okay, the kind of uh, trade exchange, socioeconomic exchange, the ability to do business in parts of of Africa. Uh, if you don't mind, Matt, you had a second question. <laughs> yes, no, I, 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 I basically tried to lump too many, uh, too many questions. I can't, I can't remember what it was either. Um, when when uh, there, are, there is this sort of movement to big cities, you know, Lagos is the obvious, uh, is the one we'll focus on because it is so massive. What do people find when they get there? Is it a better life or is it actually just diff you know, a different set of problems? Can these, you know, the urbanisation... Are those urban centres capable of supporting people? Or is there that sort of age-old story of, you know, moving to the big city where the streets are paved with gold and when you get them, you find that actually it's not, it's not really. Are these sort of megacities, these emerging megacities, do they have the infrastructure to cope so that... Because it, basically it's fine if everyone moves there and has a decent standard of living and finds employment and, you know, can live comfortable lives. That's fine. But is that the case? I think it's fair and it's accurate to say no. Most of these uh, mega cities that you describe um, don't have the infrastructure. Uh, I'm talking about water, I'm talking about electricity, I'm talking about security, I'm talking about transport to uh, cater for the large numbers of people we see moving from rural parts of a country into 
the urban areas. And so it does become a huge struggle. I think research by IOM, the International Organization for Migration um, and other UN agencies and NGOs has shown that the capacity to actually deal with um, the, uh, I don't wanna use the word influx, let's say large increase of people moving from rural areas driven as we've talked about, partly by climatic changes and climate change issues and weather changes and an inability to live off the land um, is, 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 is increasing and is a serious issue. Um, IOM, the International Organization for Migration, we work very closely with governments, not just here in Eastern Horn of Africa, but across the region to try to address some of these issues. Um, in my own experience, uh, working and having lived around the African continent, um, when these people arrive um, in uh, the urban centers, life is pretty hard. Uh, they find that the infrastructure is not there, the jobs are not there, uh, the opportunities are not there. And so that is also a driver of this migration uh, that we're talking about. And they tend to go to places where they think there will be opportunities, cities yeah. like Lagos, Nairobi, Johannesburg, and so on and so forth. Well, it's really good to speak to you, uh, Yvonne and Dege. Uh, stay there, because we'll, we'll, we'll pick up this conversation uh, in just a sec. We're, we're taking a look at extraordinary projected uh, population rise in Africa and what it means for Africa, the continent, and, uh, and the rest of the world. Uh, we'll talk about that more in just a moment. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio, and associated with MasterCard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Kathy Newman on Times Radio. Expert analysis and well-informed discussion. Do you think we're ever going to get along any better with our nearest European neighbour? Alongside a world-class lineup of guests, experts and contributors. Fingers crossed we're not going to see the extent of flooding which we've seen in previous years. Telling the stories that matter. Shouldn't the UK government be trying to sort of calm things down given what's at stake in terms of the wider trade picture? Kathy Newman at Drive. Tomorrow afternoon from four on on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from MasterCard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Uh, morning, Matt Chorley with you. As part of our big thing today, we're taking a look at the extraordinary uh, population changes that we're seeing in, uh, in Africa where, um, I mean, the numbers are, are extraordinary. Two-thirds of Africans are under 25. In 60 years, there'll be more Nigerians than Europeans. And the, the birth rate, much, much higher, fertility rate, much, much higher in, in many African countries uh, than they are in, well, I suppose we call the West, in the UK uh, and in America uh, too. Um, still joined in the studio by Roger Boyce, diplomatic editor of The Times. We've got Yvonne Ndege from the International Organisation for Migration on the line too. Let's bring in Dr. Parag Khanna, who's the author of Move and a specialist in globalisation. Good morning. Hello, nice to see you. Uh, we've also got Paul Morland, who's a demographer and uh, author of The Human Tide. Uh, Parag, let's come to you uh, first of all. Um, how are uh, African countries dealing with these rising, um, uh, sharp increases actually in population, but also large numbers of countries moving, uh, large numbers of people moving within countries and between countries in Africa? Right, it's a great question. So obviously there isn't one collective answer in Africa for any of these questions. It's quite a fragmented continent. You know, we can speak about West Africa, East Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so forth, but not really generalize in terms of capacity. Um, as, as Yvonne rightly pointed out, 
the vast majority of African migration is within uh, Africa across the borders. Uh, we've seen episodes that are quite alarming in terms of responding to your question. Uh, remember the influx of uh, migrants into sub-Saharan Africa, uh, sorry, into South Africa in particular over the last several years has caused any number of incidences of, you know, riots and so forth. So, you know, we can't say, on the one hand, we can celebrate the fluidity of migration, especially when it comes to labor markets, allowing people to move to where they might be needed, where their jobs. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, the capacity, as Yvonne also mentioned, is not really there in terms of infrastructure. So there isn't really, you know, one answer to this. And then, of course, if we factor in what's happening across uh, West Africa and the Horn of Africa, with uh, young men in particular pushing north uh, to try and get to Europe, you know, those that don't make it wind up overwhelming. Of course, the public uh, is services to the extent they exist, you know, in countries like Libya and elsewhere. Um, and then when they do make it across, of course, they're often, um, you know, they've obviously been exploited uh, and extorted by the various, uh, you know, sort of uh, agents that, that try to help them cross the Mediterranean or on, most tragically of all, they sink or even attacked by the militias that have been, uh, you know, sort of bribed by European governments to try and keep those migrants away. So it's not a, um, you know, it's it's a very very difficult difficult story in the in the best of circumstances. Yeah. Uh, when you when you think about the in, intra African uh, migration, that that said, again, when you factor in climate change and you look at the fact that you know larger numbers of people, not just in Africa but of course in South Asia and Southeast Asia as well have become and are going to become climate migrants, we do need to preserve that sense of not borderlessness, but a, a proactive approach to resettling populations into uh, slightly you know, more or that whatever zones in Africa, as well as other parts of the world that are uh, habitable and uh, fertile, uh, moving people to those areas so that they can actually enjoy stable livelihoods uh, into the future. Roger, when you uh, wrote a piece uh, on this for the Times a couple of weeks ago, you 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 wrote about these these sort of invisible shipwrecks, as they're known, mm. the the migrant boats that sink that basically nobody knows what happened. Yes, from uh, mainly from West Africa uh, towards the Canaries, for example, because you obviously the ambition is to get to European Union space, and that's frankly the closest space that there is. And uh, yeah, they you know they're sunk. Um, they collapse, um, and uh, no, and it goes completely unrecorded. Um, I, I think I think IOM probably has statistics on this, but I think it was at least nine hundred deaths in that way. Um, and I I wrote about it basically to highlight the fact that it's not just the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah? The, this is something that's spilling over. Um, in uh, in uh, to the west of Africa, to the east of Africa, to the north of Africa. Um, so it's not just the Mediterranean. And of course, I was writing partly for a British audience, so and not just the Channel, yeah. So uh, which is what we obsess with in in Britain. We're just seeing the uh, a little <coughs> post postscript to this uh, to this whole yeah. The, uh, the, those that make it to a, to a boat in the in the English Channel, there's a the, the, the story behind that is so much. Uh, so much broader. Yes, it's it is, and it's partly an African story yeah. still. Yeah, so we get a lot of Eritreans. We get a lot of, uh, well, not as many Ethiopians as we did, but but you know, it it is partly an African yeah. story. 
Uh, Paul Morland, let's um, um, bring you in there. Um, th there's obviously politics is bound up in this too. And is there a risk that we, we sort of get to a situation where if climate, you know, and all these things, these strands sort of pull together, if climate change isn't properly tackled, and that in part depends on the conversation going on in Glasgow at COP26 this week, if more parts of uh, Africa become inhospitable and therefore, uh, and the, the mega cities, the infrastructure can't cope with the influx of, of people, therefore, do more people try to reach Europe and then... Do we have a sort of that that creates a massive tension then, doesn't it, between uh, Europe, which likes to think it's a you know an outward facing positive liberal uh, uh, collection mostly of uh, um, countries, and what's happening right across the water in Africa? What's what's the risk um, of that happening? You know, essentially sort of you know tougher borders to stop people trying to reach Europe. Well, I'd like to come back to that, but I do think so far it's been a, uh, I mean, we've had some really interesting and valuable contributions, but it's been a bit of a litany of disaster. And I just want to go back to the very root of this demographic explosion, which is actually good news. So women in Africa have had six or seven children on average from time immemorial. What's happened in the last few decades, because of quite rudimentary health care, uh, because of increases in education, a whole range of factors, the modernization that Roger was talking about, the mortality rates have fallen. Children are not dying uh, before their first birthdays in anything like the numbers they were. And that's the fundamental driver of the population explosion in Africa. So the fundamental driver is good news. People are eating better. They are getting more education. They're learning how to look after their children. So there is a falling uh, death rate, and that's why the population in Africa has exploded. Um, as people move to the cities, eventually, that will mean they have fewer children. It's just taking a long time. In some parts of Africa, like Nigeria, it's already happening in places like Kenya and Ethiopia. So there is a, a fall in the birth rates there as people are more educated and more urbanized. There is huge pressure for people to come into Europe. And I think it's very much a European decision, um, both individual countries in Europe and Europe as a whole, as to whether they want uh, mass immigration from other continents, uh, whether they want fundamental demographic and ethnic change in Europe itself, or whether they want to go the Japanese route of actually depopulation, or whether they want to have larger families themselves. Um, Yvonne, I think you wanted to come back in there. Yvonne and Dege. I did, Matt, on the uh, point about uh, um, the uh, Mediterranean uh, sea uh, crisis, as it as it's called, and and which is is reported, and one of the things that we've observed at um, IOM, the International Organization for Migration, is that there are um, similar, if not worse, ongoing, um, you know, humanitarian uh, and security issues happening right here on the continent of Africa, which do not get reported um, as much as uh, one would like to see. Um, as as we as as was said in the, in the during the discussion, uh, you know the narrative is, is is dominated by the idea that this population growth or explosion, as as it's been called, um, is driving people uh, from Africa. I've explained that actually most of it is happening within Africa, but we do also have you know, young African men and women and girls, even in some situation, children in the, have also been found on, on these routes trying to leave the continent, again, driven by climate change. That's one factor, but other factors as well. Also seeking those same opportunities in the Gulf countries. So um, leaving uh, small nations like Djibouti, crossing the Gulf of Aden uh, to get to Yemen, 
which is obviously in crisis to, to say the least, uh, walking through Yemen or trying to get through Yemen to reach its border with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and other Gulf, Gulf nations to find opportunities, to find, um, to find uh, uh, work and employment, um, mainly as, as domestic workers and drivers and, and cleaners and whatnot. So uh, IOM, the International Organization for Migration, obviously works very hard to try to uh, look at the drivers of this. What is actually driving this? And this is where we very much, very much want to turn the focus, the international focus on. What are the drivers of this that cause, you know, young men, some of them teenagers, you know, uh, to, to take these treacherous journeys to face this sort of exploitation um, that we see all the time um, from traffickers and smugglers to take these life risk, life, life threatening journeys um, in order to just find, uh, you know, a, a basic uh, line of work or job to send money back home. Um, so, yeah, this is one point I just wanted to raise, yeah. because, as I said, we see this a lot in the eastern horn of Africa on the route that leads to the Middle East. Really good to speak to you. Yvonne Ndege there, a regional spokesperson for the International Organisation for Migration, which is part of the UN. Joining us there from Nairobi in Kenya. We also heard from Dr. Pag Karna, the author of Move and a specialist in globalisation, and Paul Morland, who's a demo demographer and author of The Human Tide. Uh, just finally, um, Roger Boyes, um, diplomatic editor of The Times, uh, part of the reason why we did this is because of this piece you wrote uh, for The Times a couple of weeks ago. And the, the role that Britain could play, and you said, that, you know, if global Britain means anything, it means helping these 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 emerging cities become more stable so that i think that you um, even quoted a young african who, who basically said uh, if you have a job if you have a business you wouldn't dream of living in europe and that's essentially the the the, the point yeah of course um because you know going to europe carries a cost yeah it carries a risk to life uh, a fractured family um the uncertainties that exist um and um all the sort of negative propaganda that that is kind of coming out of of hostile uh, European states. So I I just think that we have to analyze, um, uh, for example, with our aid programs, uh, how to nudge. Um, uh, I mean, the the main issue is how internal migration in Africa turns into migration to Europe. Yeah, that's the issue facing governments like the British government. Yeah, and um, the answer seems to be. Uh, sometimes it's climate, but that's that's background noise in some some respects. But it's governance and it's uh, corruption in these cities and it's the inability to get things done in these cities. So a lot of um, entrepreneur, young people who come to big cities, to mega, African mega cities, hoping to get something done. Uh, find that they're blocked. They're blocked by bureaucracy or by the need for bribes. Um, they're, uh, they live in poor conditions, you know. Uh, they don't have, the city administrations don't have answers to things like waste. Um, their, their traffic is a nightmare. It's a, it's a disaster to get, well, disaster is an overused word, but I mean, it's, uh, it's extremely difficult to be mobile. So uh, all of these things we can help with. Um, if, if, if we think that uh, aid policy, apart from increasing literacy and reducing poverty, is also about making life more livable uh, and therefore easing the migration problem towards Europe, 
then these are the sort of things we should be doing. And I remember in Eastern Europe, after the collapse of communism, that we had a know-how fund. Well, we should have something similar, you know, to train professionals how to deal with these things. We should send traffic engineers or have conversations about how to deal with these clog yeah. clogged cities and health experts. And, uh, you know, we, we can help across a whole range of things and we should be doing it. Roger Boyd, really good to see you. Roger Boyd's a diplomatic editor and columnist of the Times. I've just tweeted the link to the piece that, that sort of spurred all this on. So if you want to read more about what we've been discussing, some really, there's loads of facts and figures in there, but also human stories too. So uh, yeah, I've just, uh, I've just tweeted the link for that. So go online and, uh, and have a look. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.